following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. I hope that you will make a point to stick around and be a part of that uh, baptism celebration and make a lot of noise celebrating these folks who are making that commitment today. Uh, Great to see all of you here. Great to to know that you survived uh, the ice storm. Uh, Great to know that the power grid survived the ice storm as well, right? Um, So uh, I'm really glad to be back preaching this week. I've been out for a couple of weeks. One of those was planned and one of those was Omicron. So I did, it got me and I made it through okay, but really glad to be back and preaching this morning. If you have a Bible with you or on your device, grab it and let's go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at a couple of scenes from the life of Daniel this morning. It was a Tuesday and uh, Kim was pregnant with our first child. She'd already left to go to work and I was standing there in the living room of our little duplex in Lakewood, ironing my shirt, getting ready to go to a meeting. And I was there ironing my shirt that morning and I I was watching the the Today Show, which is sort of odd because I'm not really a Today Show guy. But there I was ironing my shirt, watching the Today Show, and, and all of a sudden things started to get a little chaotic on the Today Show because reports started to come in that it appeared as though a plane had crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center in New York. And uh, I stood there and continued to watch the coverage as many of us saw the second plane hit the second tower. I had to be at that meeting, so I, I got in the car and, and I took off, but I, but I stopped on the way uh, at little Benny's Bagel in Lakewood. And while I was waiting on my bagel... I was listening, they had the radio playing, the news coverage, as they said the first tower had fallen. For 20 years since then, when I walk back into that little bagel shop, it takes me right back to that moment. And I suspect that if you're here or you're watching online this morning and you lived through and were conscious of that experience, that you could tell a very similar story. Right? That you could tell about exactly where you were and what you were doing when you saw or heard what was happening on that September the 11th, 2001. And I tell that story this morning because I think that it's the closest thing in our collective imagination that allows us to, to just be able to get some glimpse of what it must have been like for the people of God, the fall of Jerusalem. The closest thing in our collective memories to that kind of experience of pain, loss, devastation, disorientation. It's 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, and conquered it. After his victory, he took some of the the elite, some of the ruling class, back with him to Babylon. He carried them into exile. Not too long later, Nebuchadnezzar and his army came back to Jerusalem, and this time they devastated the city, turning the entire city into ground zero, turning the very temple of God into a pile of rubble. And this time they took not only the the, the ruling class, they, they took the working class, leaving only the poorest of the poor remaining in the land. They took God's people away. And into exile in Babylon. 
And what must that have been like? That, that, that they must have found themselves living through that experience saying, is this the end? Has God finally given up on us? Is this the end of our life as a nation? Is this the end of the dream of God for a world set right? We're in the fifth week this week of a sermon series that we're calling the story of God, where we're looking at the whole story of the Bible, recognizing that that many of us may have grown up learning the stories of the Bible. Like for example, today, the story that we're going to talk about, some of you learned about these characters through uh, talking vegetables, right? If you're a millennial or younger, you're familiar with this story from Veggie Tales. Some of us may have grown up learning the stories of the Bible, but few of us really grew up learning the story of the Bible. The idea that this diverse collection of writings written over millennia holds together as one coherent story. We said that like every great story, it begins with an introduction that gives us a sense of the setting and the main characters. And we talked about that in week one with the story of creation. But like every great story, there's an inciting incident that introduces a conflict into the story, the, the tension of the story. And we talked about that week two with the fall, the great rupture, the vandalism of shalom. And what's God, God going to do with this world that he has made that is now broken by sin? Week three, we talked about the call of Abraham, the election of Abraham and the people of Israel, his descendants, to be the means through which he would carry forward his rescue mission in the world. That God loves this good world that he has made. And he has a desire to, to reach all nations, to bless all nations. But, but he's going to work in history, through history, through one particular family and the nation that comes from their heritage to work out his rescue mission in the world. And yet, then last week, we saw that it looked like the rescue mission was over because God's people, the people through whom he, he chose and called to be part of his rescue mission, found themselves in slavery in Egypt. But we have the great experience of, of deliverance at the Exodus. So we're breaking up this rising action in the great story into three movements. Election, Abraham and Israel. Exodus, God's liberation of his people from bondage. Out of bondage and into identity and proximity. To be um, close to God in his presence and to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I, I would really encourage you, if you've missed a week, you want to go back and take a listen. Because the, the, the story holds together. But from, from election to exodus and this week to exile. Once again, it seems as though the, the dream has been lost. But God had warned his people. He had told them that once they get into the land that he had de- delivered them into. That if they forgot him, if they turned away from him, that they would find themselves carried off into exile. Deuteronomy, um, the Lord speaks through Moses to the people. And he says this, he says, after you've had children and grandchildren have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you on this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing over the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive. 
uh, among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Right? God had told his people that, that they could expect that they would be taken off into exile if they turned away from him. And then God sends prophets over and over and over through the centuries to his people to warn them of God's coming judgment. And they warned them about two twin sins that are the reasons that Israel ends up in exile. The sins of idolatry and injustice. A failure to love God first and foremost above all else. And a failure to love their neighbors as themselves. And for this, they wind up in exile. We're gonna spend the season of Lent talking about the similarities between their tendencies and ours. The story of them is the story of us. But, but this morning, what I wanna focus on is I wanna focus on how to thrive in exile. You see, the experience that that they had was was one of a profound disorientation that that all their life, their their faith had had a kind of home field advantage in the land. For them, their faith and their cultural experience were were intimately bound up together. That in their land, that that they, that they were the vast majority of the population that believed just like they did. They had a kind of home field advantage Their beliefs were honored within their cultural setting. But when taken away into exile, all of that decisively, dramatically changed. And the question I have for you is, is there any parallels that you can see between their story and ours? If you look back at Western history, going all the way back to the fourth century, from the fourth century onward, Christianity, the church in Western culture has had a position of cultural power, privilege, and prestige. It's referred to as Christendom, right? The church was at the center of Western culture, held a a kind of power, a kind of privilege, and a prestige within the Western world. And yet I think that we can look around and recognize that that has decisively changed. The the churches in Europe that are just a few decades ahead of us are, are uh, are filled all week with, with um, people that are there to, to take in their beauty, but they're empty on the weekend of worshipers. Here in the U.S., we find ourselves, uh, Christianity, more and more feeling that sense of, of um, marginalization. The, 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 the sense that, that we had a kind of home field advantage, if it ever was true, is certainly lost now. And so... There's things that we can learn from looking back at this experience of God's people in exile. And to do that, I want to zero in on one particular figure to to focus our attention on the figure of Daniel. Daniel is a man who is taken away into exile and shows us how to thrive there. Look with me in Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his gods in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, and make a note about that chief of the court officials. We'll come back to that in a second. He ordered Ashpenaz, the the chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. 
The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter in the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So what's going on here? Well, this is the first uh, conquering of Jerusalem where they take originally just some of the nobility, some of the ruling class. And what's the king doing here? Well, he knows that the best way for him to avoid having to fight another war, right? the best way for him to, to crush any rebellion is to take those who are the, the elites within that society and to take them into his own homeland and to make of them good Babylonians. That if he can just remove them from that place, that, that they won't be prone to rebel, that as he immerses them in this three-year process of reshaping their identity, teaching them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, making of them good Babylonians, pressing them into the Babylonian mold. You know, we talk around here about that famous passage from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He's writing the church in Rome. And he says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this age. God's people in each and every age are tempted to be conformed, to be pressed into the patterns of the age. And this is exactly what the king of Babylon is trying to do with these young men, to press them into his mold, to make of them good Babylonians. Imagine their experience. These are probably teenagers and uh, they have seen their king and his armies defeated. They have now been taken away from their families, marched over 1600 miles to Babylon. I mentioned that, uh, that reference to the, the chief of the court officials that some translations actually say the chief of the eunuchs. And it's been suggested that perhaps these young men were subjected to becoming eunuchs, that they were castrated when they were brought to Babylon. They were uh, now here in this foreign place, surrounded by people speaking a foreign language and worshiping foreign gods and trying to make them just like them, trying to make of them good Babylonians. They even see it in the change of their names, right? That each of these young men have a name that points them to Israel's one true God. And yet they're given new Babylonian names. The, the names, uh, first Daniel, uh, Daniel means um, God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Isn't that a great name? Yahweh has been gracious. Uh, Mishael, uh, who is what God is? Azariah, Yahweh has helped, right? Each one of their names reminds them the truth about God and the truth of who they are. But then those names get changed to Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, Bel, one of the Babylonian gods. Bel will protect. Shadrach, inspired by Aku. Meshach, belonging to Aku. Abednego, servant of Nego. Each of their names is now changed to point them to a Babylonian god. And they can easily find themselves just sort of flowing along in this cultural stream, becoming good Babylonians. 
But Daniel and his friends are determined not to let it happen. Right? The, the, the story goes on. We're not going to read all the verses, but let me just summarize what happens next here in chapter one. So um, they've been told that they're going to be given a portion of the king from the king's table. Like, they're going to eat like princes and be given a, a portion of the king's wine. Right? Teenage boys with access to all the wine they want. It's the best wine around. But Daniel says, no, 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 no. And the text says Daniel resolved that he would not be defiled by the king's food and the king's wine. And scholars sort of wrestle with what, what does it mean to suggest that, that he would be defiled in this way? It could be reference to the fact that the food that was being provided uh, was not in accordance with the Old Testament food laws. And so it would be defiled in that sense. Others have suggested that it was likely uh, food that had been sacrificed to idols and defiled in that way. And it, it may be that both of those things are true. But I think there's also another element of this, which is Daniel recognizing exactly what the king is doing. Daniel recognizing the seductive power of the king's table and the king's wine. That if they just go along with it, if they just float along in the stream, that they'll just get pulled right into exactly what the king is trying to accomplish. They will be pressed into the mold of good Babylonians. And Daniel's just not going to do it. And so he, he hatches this plan. He, he goes to one of the officials and says, hey, listen, we're not going to eat that food. So could you just, could you give us something else? And the guy's like, I can't give you anything else. Like if, if the king finds out that you're not eating the food that he's providing, like he's going to be mad and it's my neck on the line. And Daniel says, here's the deal. Just give us just vegetables and water. And for 10 days, we'll, we'll just eat vegetables and water. And then we'll see how that goes, right? We'll see if we're not at the end of that 10 days, actually in good physical health, that we're not stronger and, 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 and more capable. Now, Let's pause here for a second, right? I mentioned, I think these are probably teenage boys. I have teenage boys in my house. One just turned 20, so he's no longer in that category, but I have one who's turning 17 next week. I can hardly get him to eat one vegetable, much less eat only vegetables, right? Daniel's saying, we'll eat nothing but vegetables. We'll drink nothing but water. And let's just see how we turn out. Now, some of you know that there was a kind of the fad that was going around within Christian circles a few years ago of the Daniel fast, right? The Daniel diet. What's interesting about that is it actually works precisely the opposite of what happens here in the story, right? The whole idea in the Daniel diet is to, like, to, get, to get smaller, to, to shrink down. But, but Daniel's saying, no, watch. We'll eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water and we'll be bigger, we'll be stronger, we'll be more buff, right? I, ten, 10 days with only vegetables and water, my 17-year-old my would be like all shriveled up and lying in a fetal position on the ground, right? But sure enough, they eat nothing but vegetables, drink nothing but water for 10 days. At the end of it, they're fitter, they're stronger. It's noticeable in their physical appearance. And so they work this out. And now for the remainder of this three-year period, three years of their training, they eat nothing but vegetables and drink only water. It's a way of resisting the temptation to be sucked into the king's plan, to be pressed into the king's mold. And watch what happens as a result. Look with me then at verse 18. At the end of that time, set by the king to bring them into his service, that three-year period, um, the chief official presented them to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, 
So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Right? They, they resist the temptation to be pressed into the king's mold, but they actually go on to serve the king. And, and what we're going to find as the, the story unfolds is over the next several years, Daniel is there serving the king of Babylon, seeing that the people of Babylon thrive. And we fast forward, I want you to flip over with me to Daniel chapter 6 to look at one more scene from Daniel's life. And this is actually several years later. Several years have gone by. Daniel has been serving the king of Babylon, but not getting sucked into a scheme to get pressed into his mold. Now, we actually have had a regime change. By the time we get to chapter 6, we've gone from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Darius the Mede. And a lot of times in the ancient world, when there was a regime change like this, all those who served the previous king were out. Many of them without their heads. And yet here we find Daniel, who was right there serving Nebuchadnezzar, is now, once again, right there serving Darius the Mede. Look with me. Daniel chapter 6, beginning verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators ruling over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel is one of the three most powerful men overseeing the government in the country. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among their administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He was about to become number two, second only to the king himself. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Right? This is interesting. They are jealous and they are out to figure out how do we take this guy out? And so they start poking around. They start looking for dirt. They start looking for skeletons in the closet. Surely there's something that he screwed up, right? He was negligent about something. There's something we can screw up, point to, and blame it on him. They look and there's nothing. Well, surely there's some corruption somewhere. Surely he does have some skeletons hidden in the closet somewhere. And they look and there's none. They find that he is a man of competence and integrity. And it's interesting that they then realize that the only way that we can go after him is by going after his obedience to his God. Because despite the fact that Daniel had risen to become one of the most influential, powerful figures in the whole kingdom, he had still remained faithful to the one true God. And so they devise a plan. And uh, we'll pick up that plan here in verse, let's see, what's the verse? Um, uh, verse six. So the administrators uh, and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever, which is a great way to, to greet a king, by the way. The bonus material for the sermon. If you ever get a chance to meet a king, that's a good way to start, right? May the king live forever. You actually see it throughout the story as sort of a repeated uh, refrain when they meet the king. May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed which is a lie, by the way, because Daniel wasn't a part of this plan. 
have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, before we go to what happens next in the story, I think it's worth us just pausing for a minute at the reality of just what's happening here. This is a story that we often tell to children. We, t- we tell kids the story of Daniel and the lion's den. We tell kids the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Rakshak and Benny. Uh, we tell these stories as though they're children's stories, and yet they're more than merely children's stories. What's happening here? What's happening here is um, the idolization of national identity. Here's a king who is saying, I am the only one worthy of your veneration and allegiance. And history is replete with regime after regime after regime who prop themselves up with that kind of idolization of national identity. The the history of the 20th century, the most violent century in the history of the world can be told by the story of one regime after another that prop themselves up as God's chosen people and prop themselves up as the only worthy objects of veneration and allegiance. The the temptation that is put forward here is the temptation towards the idolization of national identity. And Daniel's having none of it. Daniel is loyal to the king. He's loyal to the kingdom. He's loyal to the nation, but only to a point. Because he knows the ultimate object of his veneration and allegiance. And there is nothing and no one that can come into, um, into, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, You know that when you're watching a video online, I told somebody this earlier, when you're watching a video online and and it bogs down and like that little thing just sits there and spins, you know what I'm talking about? When I was preaching at nine o'clock, like it felt like the whole time that was happening inside my head. It only happened once in this one. And it was right there. I don't, I still don't know the word I'm looking for. Um, Daniel knew that there was nobody else that could come in conflict with or, or compete with. I think that's the word I was looking for. Compete with for his sense of ultimate loyalty, allegiance, veneration. So watch what Daniel does. I love this. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home and he went up to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. See, one of the things that had kept Daniel grounded in his sense of identity throughout this entire period is that three times a day, he would get down on his knees, look out the window facing Jerusalem and pray to God. And when he hears this decree that the ultimate veneration and allegiance belongs to the king, he just kept right on doing what he had done before. He didn't shy away. He didn't pull away from the window. He just kept right on doing exactly what he'd done before. And of course, if you know then where the story goes from here, they are watching for this to happen. 
right? They've set a trap for him, knowing that this is what he's going to do. And so then they go back and they rat him out to the king. King, you issued this decree, and then we caught Daniel. He was praying and not to you. So you got to do what what the decree said. You put the decree in place. It's irrevocable. You've got to throw him to the lions. Well, the king did not want to do this at all. Right, the king now is, is feeling caught and yet he feels as though there's no getting around this decree. In fact, the, the text tells us that he tried all the way to the evening to figure out some loophole, some way he could get around it. And there's no loophole to be found. And so reluctantly, he had to have Daniel drugged to the lion's den and thrown in. The king went home and had a sleepless night. And early the next morning, he, he came back to the, the lion's den and, and he cried out, Daniel, Daniel, has your God saved you? Has your God spared your life? And here's a voice coming out of the den. Oh, king, live forever. <laughs> Which is a great way to greet a king if you get an opportunity. Oh, king, live forever. The Lord sent an angel to close the mouth of the lion. That he has saved me, he has delivered me because he knows that I've done nothing wrong before him and nothing wrong before you. The king joyously pulls Daniel out of the pit and then turns to those who set the trap and they wind up with the lions who devour them like that. The, the irony that you see at the end of the story. But, but watch what happens next. Watch the result of all this. Um, Pick up in verse uh, 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus of Persia. Right here at the end of the story, because of Daniel's faithfulness, both to the king and to his God, the king who is the most powerful man in the world at the time is publicly declaring that the God of Daniel is the one true God, the the true and living God. And it says, and Daniel prospered in Babylon. Daniel was thriving in exile. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to just offer three observations about what Daniel's life story tells us about how to thrive in exile. First, what I think Daniel's life says, what what Daniel does, and what I think he would say to us is seek the welfare of Babylon. Seek the welfare of the place that God has put you. This is actually what we see explicitly commanded to a different group of exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse seven. The Lord is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and he says, seek the peace and prosperity. Seek the shalom is what it says. Seek the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Literally it says in its shalom is your shalom. That Daniel, throughout this story, is faithful to Babylon. That he, that he seeks the good of Babylon. And we are to be people who seek the good of the place that God has put us. To seek the good of our nation. To seek the good of our city. To seek the good of our workplaces and our neighborhoods. 
That's why around IBC, we've talked for years. Some of you are new, maybe haven't heard us talk about this. For years, we've talked about the idea that we want to be the kind of church that if we were in financial crisis and going to have to close our doors, that our neighbors around us in our city would raise the money to keep the doors open. Because we're the kind of church that loves and blesses the community around us. And this is the reputation that we're known for. And it's who we want to continue to be, to seek the welfare of the place that God has put us. Second, so first is seek the welfare of Babylon. Second, refuse to compromise with Babylon. Daniel refuses to compromise with Babylon. He refuses to allow himself to be pressed into that mold. And where perhaps are you being tempted to compromise? We're called to be people who are main people of integrity. And yet once again, I think it's important that we underscore the particular temptation that was put before Daniel, the temptation towards the idolatry of nation. And then we recognize that while we love our nation and we serve our nation and we seek to bless our nation, that we can't make an idol out of it. And this has been a perpetual human temptation that goes all the way back to ancient time. That we refuse to compromise with Babylon. But then finally, Nurture a counter-identity in Babylon. Maintain that sense of who you are. Daniel, three times a day, praying toward Jerusalem, remembering who he is. And one of my favorite things about the whole story is its title. Right? What does it say on your page? It says, Daniel. Did you notice in chapter one? Daniel gets a new Babylonian name, but nobody ever calls him that. He's always called Daniel because he knows his true identity. And he continues to nurture that identity even in exile. Seek the welfare of Babylon. Refuse to compromise with Babylon and nurture a counter identity in Babylon. And what's interesting is Israel in exile when they thought, is the story over? Is the dream dead? That this was actually the place that they experienced profound transformation and renewal. And maybe, just maybe, as we find ourselves feeling as though the church is more and more pushed to the margins of society, maybe that's precisely where God wants us to be so that we experience transformation and renewal and are sent into our place to seek the welfare of our city but to refuse to compromise with the patterns of this age and to nurture our sense of who we most deeply truly are. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.